Well, this is Current Yield, Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air, and uh, I am Jim Grant. And with me, as always, is the great Deputy Editor of Grants, Evan Lorenz. Uh, good, good afternoon. afternoon to you, Evan. Ladies and gentlemen, that was just a, a test to see whether uh, Evan's there. You are here. I'm here and mostly awake. Excellent. Okay. Um, well, Evan, this is a fine kettle of fish. I mean, um, all the world is talking about uh, the Fed tightening, Fed tightening, Fed tightening. And um, as I see the situation, the Fed continues to do uh, so-called quantitative easing and to uh, impose an interest rate of about 0% on an economy that is generating, uh, I don't know, kind of uh, 14% nominal growth in GDP and 10% broad money growth, et cetera, et cetera. It does seem incongruous. And uh, do you have any message for our masters at the Fed, Evan? Are you going to just... Uh, let them do well, what they I, want I don't think they've do. ever listened to me before, so I don't expect them to listen to me now. But I, I do think it's remarkable that we've seen like a 10% sell-off in the S&P 500 when, as you noted, the Fed still kept rates at zero and is still buying bonds. It's not like they've tightened yet. Yeah, well, there's some. I mean, this uh, jawbone business goes back many decades. People talk about the Fed. Uh, the jawbone of an ass was one uh, comment one heard in the, in the day about uh, unpopular Fed chairman. But Evan. Um, we are not just the two of us alone here with Henry, our engineer. There are soon to be three of us. And I'm going to introduce our guest. His name, pure and simple, is Doomberg. And Doomberg is, I think, the uh, one of the leading green chickens. That's the icon on uh, the Doomberg uh, Substack Enterprise, which presents a field of uh, essays for your delectation. They come out very pretty regularly. I'm impressed by the, the productivity of the Doomberg Enterprise. And, uh, the topics are eclectic. The writing is uh, silken, and the thinking is, uh, is often kind of unauthorized. So uh, I can't imagine a better trio of um, accolades for a Grant's guest. So Doomberg, uh, welcome Jim to Grant Grant and Eels. Evan Lorenz. It's, uh, we have truly climbed the entire mountain of uh, content creation in the finance world by finally arriving uh, at, on your podcast. What a wonderful achievement. It's a real honor to be here and very much looking forward to what I know will be a, uh, a thrilling discussion. Well, this is also uh, rather economical, Doomberg, because you have saved me the trouble of doing an advertisement for Grant's interest rate. Have I mentioned Grant's interest rate observer yet? <laughs> it's it's the, oh, the, pre, the premier <laughs> intellectual thought-provoking ah, uh, you know, bi-weekly yeah. publication on Wall Street. Thank you, Doomberg. And back at you. You know, I've um, uh, I ask you on this program, Evan and I ask you on this program to uh, talk about uh, cryptos. I, I I wonder if we are narrowing a little bit uh, unnecessarily the bounds of the conversation because if you look on uh, the production of Doomberg on Substack, this it's it's just a, a wonderful medley of uh, contemporary themes and uh, and also a pop cultural reference. I, it goes from um, the Peterman catalog to uh, Seinfeld to, uh, for all I know, there's some Haydn and Mozart on there as well. There's nothing purely contemporary about it. But um, uh, So let me, let me, with all that said and mumbled, Doomberg, let me begin by asking you what you make of, uh, of the contention that comes out of Fidelity Investment that uh, we live in a Bitcoin world. Bitcoin is singular. It is the thing we have to know and to own. And uh, if you don't, you're kind of uh, not here. I mean, it seems so extraordinary coming from Fidelity Investment, which is like down the middle of the fairway of the financial establishment. And yet, and yet here we have Fidelity Investment telling you that this 
digital invisible thing is the center of the financial world. Well, the first thing that I make of it, and this perhaps lays bare our own, you know, they say they say that your your experiences sort of shape you. Um, the Jumberg team comes from industry um, on the commodity side, but more importantly, in the context of your question, we come from uh, very large publicly traded companies with tens of thousands of employees. And if there's one thing we learned in that time that there is no fidelity, there's just people in fidelity who get quoted uh, in the paper. And, <laughs> and so um, I, I, while that might seem like a, a significant comment vis-a-vis uh, -vis the social acceptance of Bitcoin as the new reality, uh, I wouldn't necessarily uh, take the entire brand attribution of fidelity and apply it to that statement. And I say that from direct personal experience where members and organizations I used to lead would give an interview in the press that seemed to be incongruent with the official policy of our public relations team and um, handling such questions thereafter uh, was never very pleasant. Uh, but to, to the broader question, um, we've written several pieces on Bitcoin, although we are not a cryptocurrency newsletter, as you mentioned. Um, we kind of like to write about whatever is interesting to us, which hopefully has a high enough overlap of sort of correlation with what people are interested in reading. And um, one of the reasons that we've mostly stayed away from the crypto space, although when we do write, we are provocative, um, is because you literally can't write about Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies without kicking the hornet's nest of, um, of online trolls, especially on Twitter, where, where we have a very large presence. And so um, as a general rule, we would count ourselves as interested in the technology, skeptical about the valuation, and mindful of the high likelihood that eventually the authorities will crack down on it. Yeah, you know, um, speaking of the um, valuation, I, there was a, there's so much in, in Doomberg, and not the least of it are the people who read it and the links on Doomberg to those readers and those writers. And one of the links I followed one day was um, led me to an essay called uh, Why Market Cap is Meaningless and Dangerous Valuation Metric as Supplied to Crypto Markets, written by somebody named uh, Anthony Back, very knowledgeable and uh, incisive fellow was Anthony Back. And uh, he gives you just so people talk about, uh, you know, Bitcoin um, being like a, a formerly a trillion dollar enterprise now, uh, nearly seven, whatever it is today, I don't know, five trillion, uh, zero, I forget, I lose track. It's, it's, uh, I'm showing 700 billion. Ah, okay. Here's why that's meaningless. You ready? Okay, this is this is from a fine Doomberg dot substack dot com or substack anyway, from Doomberg on Substack, here is a link from one of their fine essays. Why market cap is meaningless. Quote, let's say I create a token with a 10 billion supply. I develop a simple ERC-20 contract and deploy it on Ethereum. And on an exchange, I then convince my friend, Evan, to buy one of these tokens for $1. Boom. There you have it. A token with a $10 billion market cap. Congratulations to me. I have now created a promising new project that has received lots of investment. And here we are talking about it on current yield. This guy is this guy is a genius. Magic. So I mean, um, so, Bitcoin, yeah, so Bitcoin is $700 billion um, or not. But I want to prime this pump. Evan and Doomberg by reading just this final paragraph of the um, of the individual at Fidelity who, who who wrote this thing. All right, quote: Traditional investors typically apply a technology investing framework to Bitcoin, leading to the conclusion Bitcoin as a first mover technology will easily be supplanted by a superior one or have lower returns. 
However, Bitcoin's first technological breakthrough was not as a superior payment technology, but as a superior form of money. As a monetary good, Bitcoin is unique. And so forth. So on. But the uh, zero hedge says, mic drop. You know, that's, that's the end. That is the culminating, unarguable, unanswerable oh, conclusion. <laughs> Of, of the guy who was quoted in the paper, yeah. <laughs> uh, so my, my response to that, and I think you're dancing around the key topic of our of one of our latest pieces, and and by as we sit here is our, our most widely read piece, and um, it's uh, a piece that we called uh, "Dollars Ex Machina." Um, and even in articulating the question, you made the sort of sleight of hand, which I know that you understand that you did, which is quoting the price of Bitcoin in dollars. And we argue um, right. that especially outside of the United States and, and for the balance of the trading volume in which Bitcoin is transacted, it's not actually traded in dollars, it's traded in stable coins, predominantly Tether. And um, what's a Tether worth is an interesting question. And in that piece, we, we still have never sort of received um, what I would call definitive uh, and, um, and, and constructive criticism that changes our mind. We've received a lot of criticism um, but in that piece, we we draw the mental experiment that we did many years ago when we first invested in the crypto space, uh, where we draw a box around the crypto universe and ask ourselves the question, how much crypto is in that box? Uh, sorry, how much fiat is in that box? An important distinction. Um, and for the, you know, maybe for the rest of the conversation, we just talk about US dollars and assume that we mean US dollar equivalents. You know, there might be some euros and some yen and some, some yuan in that system. But there's a box uh, of the crypto universe, and there's a certain amount of fiat floating around in that box. But as we know, um, price and value can have wildly different uh, meanings. And if you imagine that there exists an ability to print unbacked casino chips, and then these casino chips are used to trade the same Bitcoins back and forth to each other, we could raise the price of Bitcoin. Um, but I would argue, and we argued in that piece, that the value if you decide to use fiat currency as the framework through which you do the analysis is bounded by the amount of fiat that's in that system. And that's a question when I ask it to the Bitcoin maxis, um, I've not yet gotten a reasonable or satisfying answer to, which is you can say that Bitcoin is worth 700 billion and let's say the entire crypto universe is worth what, 1.5 or two, or depending on whatever the, the day it is that this podcast gets released. Um, how much actual hard fiat, which I know would be the ultimate oxymoron on this podcast, but for the purposes of this comparison, it's, it kind of fits how much hard fiat is floating around in that universe and how much of the quote unquote mark to market valuation that we see in the paper is genuinely reflected in what a, a, an investor could reasonably take out if everybody decided to do it at the same time. I was going to say that Evan, uh, you were, I think one of the very early uh, critics and, uh, askers of incisive questions about Tether. Um, have you been ever satisfied about what it is? Or what's, well, what's I, it, I'm or? satisfied that I wouldn't put my money there. Um, in every other regard, I'm not. Um, the, the ironic thing about um, a Tether is it essentially became a central bank within cryptocurrencies, which is ironic because whoever the person or people behind Satoshi Nakamoto was created cryptocurrencies specifically as a reaction against central banks printing money in unlimited quantities and otherwise um, infiltrating the, or uh, manipulating the markets. But for all intents and purposes, it does seem like Tether is kind of a central bank within the crypto land. It appears to print its own liabilities, which are Tether. Um, there's 
a growing amount of evidence that they may print these unbacked, and they um, dramatically increase liquidity within the crypto universe, which increases prices. But at the same time, it may be doing so with artificial liquidity. Yeah, so I, I agree with that take, Evan. And, and we actually have a, one could apply a cynical lens to what's going on. And we wrote a piece for real, very early on that nobody has read. Um, and um, it was a piece uh, involving what we believe is sort of at the heart of what might be occurring. And it was a piece that made some speculations about if we wanted to create a giant fiat confiscation machine, how would we go about doing it? Um, the piece was titled A Crypto Field of Dreams, um, Build It and They Will Come sort of reference. And it was published all the way back on May 30th, literally in the first month of Doomberg. We we had barely hatched <laughs> out of the egg when we wrote this piece. Um, when, when, when I look at the amount of leverage that the exchanges who happen to be, you know, the big exchanges overseas that happen to have close relationships and cross ownership and cross investment with Tether and Bitfinex and so on. Um, when they induce people to take a significant amount of leverage, um, we believe all they're really doing is, um, well, let's walk the, the audience through an experiment. I, Jim Grant deposits 100 US dollars into an account and is credited with Tether, 100 Tethers. And then Jim Grant is then allowed to speculate in Bitcoin with 10 to one leverage. Um, it doesn't take much of a move to wipe out Jim Grant's equity, quote unquote, in this context. And so you can essentially confiscate Jim Grant's fiat by convincing him he just made a bad trade. And there are very few, very large players that seem to have unlimited access to tethers. And these exchanges happen to know your positions. And um, you see these large volatility gyrations in cryptocurrencies all the time where you what they, they literally called liquidations. Um, but your original $100, and the point of the piece, dollars ex machina, is we have a follow the fiat mindset. Um, you deposited 100 US dollars. You were credited in Tether. You were induced to speculate with 10x leverage. The position moved 10% against you. You think you made a bad trade, when in reality, it's probably a tilted house. And your $100 is, is gone and is split amongst the thieves. Um, and that's sort of the way we look at it. Now, again, uh, we'll get lots of pushback on that, but I, I haven't seen too much evidence against that hypothesis. And in science, a hypothesis uh, only fails when it's properly nullified. I'd actually like to draw on your um, your work in the dollars ex machina piece, because again, I, I encourage uh, listeners to actually read it, because you try to trace how fiat flows into the crypto universe and flows out to it and kind of what the meanings are. But one thing we've noticed in the last three or four months is that there's been an extraordinarily high degree of correlation between cryptos and other risk assets. And in fact, in many instances, it appears that cryptos are leading sell-offs. Like when uh, the market opens up and uh, S&P goes down, cryptos have already sold off hours or even, you know, a day beforehand. Um, do you have a sense of how digital currencies have become so entwined with the broader financial markets and uh, what is the mechanism through which they seem to be tied to, I guess, worries about the Fed, worries about inflation, and kind of the sell-off and unprofitable tech? So like anything, um, what makes a particular investment bank, say, systemic from a risk perspective? Um, well, if you are a very large speculator in cryptos and you also happen to be similarly inclined to speculate in the sort of... Um, the deals on offer in the NASDAQ where you can buy uh, pre-revenue companies at infinite time sales, um, you know, there's gonna be some cross ownership and some, some correlations that drive behaviors, especially in the face of a margin call where imagine you speculated with 10 to one leverage and um, you wanted to raise some fresh 
U.S. greenbacks to go and buy some more tethers to speculate in the casino. Um, so we do think there's a lot of that. But the point of dollars ex machina actually um, is this concept of, um, well, the line that got everybody annoyed in the Bitcoin community was we said, and everybody sort of forgets the precursor to that line, if you use fiat currency as your determining framework, it's pretty undeniable that the Bitcoin slash crypto ecosystem is, has many, many elements of a Ponzi. Um, in other words, they need a constant inflow of fresh fiat to hold the entire enterprise up. And then if you think, you know, if you agree with our crypto field of dreams piece where you sort of view this as a fiat confiscation machine, well, the, the insiders know when the big collapse will come and they'll be the first to grab the dollars and go out the door. Um, so your particular question about the correlation with other risk assets, I think is just a natural consequence as more and more new players bring new money into the system. Um, and then they sort of cross pollinate between markets. Um, but, but our main piece in, in their main point of dollars ex machina was that um, if you just follow the fiat, you learn some interesting things. So I'd like to ask a follow-up, that's okay. So so cryptocurrencies, as you pointed out, kind of have become more entwined with kind of broader risk markets. If something goes bump in cryptos, is there some kind of unforeseen spillovers that might be predictable today, but investors aren't thinking about? I mean, just to take one example, um, apparently analysts at Jefferies estimate that gains on cryptocurrencies accounted for up to a quarter of all the growth in uh, luxury goods purchased in the U.S. last year. So a quarter of all the sales increased last year apparently were fueled by um, people cashing out of, you know, Dogecoin or uh, Bitcoin or other things that gained. Uh, and if those fall, of course, that'll decline. Are, are there other, I, I guess, things that you can see now, but people aren't thinking about that can happen if uh, crypto does go bump in the night? Uh, there are two main phenomena that I worry about. Um, one is the phenomenon that you described, which is sort of the paper wealth effect. So you you might quit your job because you think you're a Bitcoin millionaire. And um, because you're a hodler, you, you're not actually going to take any fiat out of the system, but your mark-to-market value of what you think are US dollars gives you the confidence to make economic decisions that you might come to regret. But the second one, which I think many people are going to confront as we hit closer to April 15th, is the tax man. And um, the IRS has ruled that Bitcoin is an asset. Um, and not just in Bitcoins, but in many of the meme stocks as well. Um, you know, nothing crushes you like a January decline in risk assets because um, you may have, especially if you're a short term trader, uh, paper gains uh, against which you owe taxes. And um, the value of your account may be below the taxes that you owe. And the IRS if, is nothing if not the hardest of the hard pipes back to the fiat world. And so if you are a frequent trader in a crypto space, um, all the rules that matter, like wash trading and you know paying short-term capital gains and um, the limited abilities to take you know uh, short-term capital losses, depending on your trading pattern, I, I, I do fear that there's going to be a wave of shock and, and disappointment uh, on the part of people who perhaps don't really understand how serious the IRS the IRS is about collecting its fiat. Um. Here, is the, here is the legends printed at the uh, bottom of the uh, 1040 form. So this is uh, 2020, but I dare say the same language is, uh, is uh, there on the uh, 2021 model. Quote, at any time during 2020, did you receive, sell, send, exchange, or otherwise acquire any financial interest in any virtual currency? Yes, or no? There's no maybe. There's no. I I did, but I re I regret it. Um, yes, I, I have you know, I, so. I have confidently so they, answered no to that question. Um, <laughs> yes, but I read I read on Doomberg itself, Doomberg. I read that uh, you and your team were not no coiners from the start. That you in fact were with this close to yes. the Lamborghini, uh, the green chicken team was. 
And then you, you just couldn't pull the trigger uh, to get out. As that piece makes clear, we it. invested in the equity stack of a company that was participating in Bitcoin. Oh, I see. Okay. I didn't mean and to, so I, I didn't mean to I, I was for... totally within the bounds of the laws when I answered that question <laughs> with, an, with, with, with what we like to say is an affirmative no. Um, and so we were lured into the Bitcoin universe from a very good friend who's a brilliant guy. And um, as one does in venture investing, if you could get in on the seed round, oftentimes you can make many, many multiples of your money. And we literally got in on a seed round that was at some ridiculously low, basically cash valuation. And then the uh, Bitcoin went bananas in 2017 phenomenon rolled out. And um, just to give you some sort of round numbers, our, our modest investment, which was the minimum allowable investment in that seed round, uh, at one point, based on various transactions, was valued on paper at 600 times what we put in. And um, in that very moment, I turned to one of the partners in our firm and said, I will sell you this investment right now for twice what I put in it. And they declined. <laughs> and so um, ultimately, when Bitcoin crashed, the company went defunct. And um, nothing screams value like the piece of paper in our drawer that that lays claim to the equity stack <laughs> yeah, right. of, of a company that no longer exists. I got some of them. Um, but at its peak, um, that was a, a, if we had been able to find our way back into the fiat world, um, we would have um, multipled our net worth uh, several fold. I'd like to throw out one thing just in terms of uh, the tax issue you said, which is that a lot of people are sitting on realized gains from last year and have unrealized losses this year, or perhaps even realized losses, but again, separate tax years. Back in the crash in 2008 and 2009, a lot of hedge funds had kind of a similar problem, which was their long books had a lot of unrealized um, losses and their short books had a lot of unrealized gains. So at the end of the year, nobody covered their shorts because nobody wanted to stick a tax bill and poor returns to their LPs. But in the first week or two of 09, everyone covered their shorts that had worked, which led to an incredible trash rally for a week or two before the markets ultimately bottomed in uh, March. So these yeah, and I, again, can have large like what we wrote in the piece, um, any, we are very interested in what we call hard pipes out of crypto universe denominated in fiat. And uh, the one that we highlight the most, of course, is Michael Saylor at, at MicroStrategy. And um, the fact that um, he has not only taken all of the cash out of the company that he is both the CEO and the chair of the board of, but went further and issued um, both convertible and then senior secured bonds to buy even more Bitcoin. And we make the point that those bonds can't be paid back in Tether and represent a future need to extract fiat out of the crypto universe in the unlikely event that he can't somehow refinance them when they come due. Um, and similarly, we talk about the president of El Salvador, Bukele, um, who has real fiat obligations due and appears to be trying to entice enough new fiat to come into the crypto universe so that he could sell a Bitcoin-backed bonds uh, and then use the proceeds so raised. Um, the, the, the sort of cover story is they're going to build this fascinating place called Bitcoin City, but we hypothesize that this has more to do with the desire to get out from under the thumb of the IMF and to pay back their obligations um, using the fiat of the next sucker at the table. Um, is it a wise thing to build Bitcoin city uh, in the mouth of a volcano? <laughs> I guess that's another question. You know, I think to me, the dubious uh, nature of the Bitcoin idea begins at the very um, at the starting line. And because the, uh, uh, the founder, Mr. Nakamoto-san, uh, built it on the denial of, uh, of trust. And so you don't trust, uh, you have no custodians, you don't trust them, no collateral agents, no transfer agents, we don't like them, no banks, no, especially no central banks. Um, but 
the the entire growth of the institution of credit, which has been one of the uh, the drivers of uh, of economic and uh, development and of human betterment over the course of the last few centuries, was built on trust. I mean, they, these founding banking families, um, Glynn and Rothschild and uh, Coote, was all about them building a sense that they could, they were good for their word, they relied upon, they were substantial people, they were honor their obligations. And is the world really going to reinvent that model to to deny the existence of the uh, of trust in a transaction? It's, it seems to me from the very first premise is a Yeah, a and you know, we, we don't get into that in the piece, but I'm happy to speculate, it, uh, speculate on it here. Um, what you're referring to, of course, is this need for proof of work to validate transactions on the blockchain, which is not only sort of energy intense, but one of the things we sort of mentioned in the piece is that it also actually requires hard fiat um, because you can't pay your electricity bill uh, in Tether, at least last I checked, um, nor in Bitcoin. And so roughly speaking by, you know, something like 900, you know, a billion dollars worth of fresh fiat that needs to flow into the crypto universe every month because this electricity bill needs to be paid and Bitcoin mining um, is, is not a super high margin business. Um, there is profit in it for sure, which is why people do it. Um, so there, there is this sort of flow. And, and again, if, if people got upset when we used the word Ponzi to talk about the flows, we meant that in the, in the least offensive way possible. There are plenty of Ponzi's in the world. Um, well, just an, <laughs> how about we go with Ponzi. agnostic Ponzi? And it's just, yeah, but that's literally the piece that we uh, that we mentioned in in the article. Um, like, and this all works fine as long as anybody who wants to redeem and leave crypto universe with fiat can do so, and it works fine as long as not too many people want to do it at the same time, and it works fine as long as new money keeps coming in. And so, one of the ways that you can analyze the phenomenon of non fungible tokens, the NFT space, um, a cynical one, uh, I would be the first to admit is that this is essentially a scheme to get artists to deposit fiat into crypto universe so that they can then buy, you know, uh, Ethereum with it and go ahead and claim their NFTs, you know, and trade in their NFTs. Um, they probably picked the, the, the wrong um, uh, economic cohort to really infuse the marketplace <laughs> with dollar bills. So, well, at least they didn't try freelance writers, I suppose. It would be worse. You mentioned this proof of work business and the energy intensiveness of, of Bitcoin. Uh, James Robertson Jr., who works at Grants, has come up with a fine piece that will be out as we speak uh, just in a few hours, but it'll certainly be available by the time this podcast is available. And in it, James points out that um, Ethereum and a host of next-generation crypto networks are uh, leaving behind that model, the proof of work, to, and they're going to do something proof of uh, stake. called proof of stake. what? Um, yeah. Stake. Proof of stake, right, yeah. And uh, the uh, energy... Uh, cost to this uh, portion of the Ethereum evolution is going to represent a drop of 99.95%, which is to say a whole lot of energy cost is going out of the system um, because of the advance, we say advance, in in operating protocols and in, uh, systems. So I think uh, the Bitcoin evangelists, these zealots, remind me nothing so much as, uh, oh, kind of a gold standard person, you know, who just insists that the way it was mm -hmm. is the way it must be and, and will be. I don't mean to point fingers at gold standard people. In fact, you could hit one 
sitting on this podcast with an ashtray who's sitting very close to you. But um, it's possible, we think, that uh, that Bitcoin is fast becoming a dinosaur and that the visionaries who were in at the beginning are fast risk becoming Luddites. So then the arc from technophile to Luddite in yes. this business is about six months. And maybe that's going to come so upon Michael the Michael Saylor would say one Bitcoin is one Bitcoin, and um, all of that is sort of FUD. Um, all of this flows from the desire to quote the value of these tokens in traditional fiats. Um, and, and, and once you right. sort of alleviate yourself of that constraint, then you're left with utility comparisons. And the technical, I would say there are many, many really smart people working on serious technical innovations in the hope of creating the perfect digital money. Whether or not Bitcoin on a technology basis survives is completely and totally different. So for Bitcoin will always exist. It's literally nothing more than, than software. I mean, um, but this is where people, yeah, well, your particular claim to Bitcoins can be lost. Um, but at its core, one of the big sleight of hands is conflating value of the technology with price. And, um, you know, orange coin go up, orange coin higher is sort of all part of the cult aspects of Bitcoin. There is, um, within the subset of the crypto participants, there is unquestionably a hardcore set of Bitcoin maximalists. We argue in the piece that um, these people believe in many of the same things we might believe in, that the, the current fiat system as operated by the banking cartel is is uh, criminal and um, and uh, destined to fail. We, uh, we we are very sympathetic to some of those arguments, um, but those arguments um, need to be separated from the value as quoted in fiat of Bitcoin. Um, and then on top of that, as you point out, once you sort of open the door to alternative forms of money, you immediately begin to question the power of the state. And on top of that, what is the problem that's trying to be solved? So for example, we would argue if people could freely transmit money all around the world with zero know your customer anti-money laundering constraints, um, there wouldn't be much need for cryptocurrency. Uh, the actual technical underpinnings are really all oriented around solving that problem, which by the way, we may be sympathetic to. You might be like a total libertarian and say, uh, if you were able to get away with selling drugs, then you should be able to you know, spend that money as you see fit. We have anti-money laundering and know your customer rules for a reason. The reason those rules exist is because the state has decided it would like to impose its power. Um, many could argue that that power is illegitimate or corrupt. We would be sympathetic to those arguments. We take all of those things as axioms. Uh, we concede those points in the Bitcoin debate. Uh, we come at this as sort of um, more or less agnostic observers of the market and say, by the way, the state is going to do something about this. For example, the IRS is going to put you over the barrel when it comes to your 2021 taxes, or they may shut Tether down, uh, and so on and so on. Let's uh, talk about something a little bit more, perhaps edifying. So uh, these days, it can be hard to find and hire the right candidates for your small business. That's why LinkedIn Jobs made it easier to find the people you want to talk to faster and for free. Right, just create a free job post in minutes on LinkedIn Jobs to reach your network and beyond to the world's largest professional network of over 770 million people. Focus on candidates with just the right skills and experience and use screening questions to get your role in front of only the most qualified. Then use the simple tools on LinkedIn Jobs to quickly filter and prioritize who you'd like to interview and hire. 
It's why small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. So LinkedIn jobs helps you find the candidates you want to talk to faster. Did you know every week nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash yield. That's linkedin.com slash yield to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Well, the, re- the reason I think that the that Bitcoin and, and many of the others trade in lockstep with the NASDAQ 100 is because uh, uh, the cryptos have been integrated into the Wall Street uh, uh, superstructure. So it was the case that um, you know Bitcoin was uh, was kind of uh, you know renegade money, and uh, uh, if you wanted to buy a surface-to-air missile, that's where you went to transact. But now the hodlers uh, must pay their taxes. The marginal margined hodlers must be marked to market. Normal tax withholding rules must apply. You need to clear. You need to settle. You need custody. You need to record, and you need to report. Well, you're missing the most important road. need, which is you need more. Fresh fiat. <laughs> Wait, I, I wasn't finished. Wait, oh, oh. <laughs> Doomberg, there, there is one thing I'd, I'd love to draw you out in because you said that you're agnostic. You're not anti-cryptocurrencies by any means. You actually did invest in a project that you thought might have some promise. Um, but you did say that you're not necessarily bullish on the coins, but you're bullish on the technology. I, I'd love to know what is it about the technology that you find intriguing because the core of it seems to be a decentralized database, which is less efficient than any kind of centralized database uh, on the planet. Let me correct you. I said we are um, interested in the technology, not necessarily <laughs> My apologies. On the technology. We are interested to learn precisely the, the answers to the precise question you just asked, which is, okay, what is the uh, underlying phenomenon that you're looking to solve? And some of the technologies are genuinely interesting. Uh, doesn't mean that we think that they're necessarily useful or advanced society. Um, it all eventually comes back to an argument that we actually are sympathetic to, Evan, which is the state has monopoly power over the, the money. Um, and that power is at the core of what many perceive to be significant injustices in society. And so we are sympathetic to the motivations, but we are not unaware of the the empire's ability to strike back. Uh, but vis-a-vis technology, again, um, we don't think that there's much going on in that universe that couldn't easily be done in the traditional system if you would just remove know your customer anti-money laundering uh, constraints. Yeah, plus you get airline <laughs> miles in the traditional system. <laughs> Something else that uh, James Robertson uh, reminded me of in the piece that he uh, worked up for for Grant's interest rate observer, he talked about um, all of the new entrants into the uh, Ethereum type of uh, blockchain application. I'm, I'm I'm probably mangling terms. I have no idea what this stuff is about. But um, he points out that the Ethereum processes 25 transactions a second on average. Um, Bitcoin is what uh, five or something? Six, I think. Um, See, yeah. So um, Solana, uh, S-O-L-A-N-A, a uh, 2019 vintage blockchain platform processes 1,954 a second and could handle 65,000 a second. And um, so it, it seems to me that if you are long Bitcoin, especially if uh, a very large percentage of your portfolio is this is devoted to it, and you have become, despite yourself, perhaps uh, rather an evangelist. You are basically short technology. 
you know, uh, I know that uh, the the purists would say this is not technology, this is money. Well, it's not money because money can be lent and borrowed. And I don't see, I have not yet seen the first volunteer take out a mortgage nominated in Bitcoin. Or uh, Doomberg, let me anticipate your point: uh, Bitcoin uh, uh, through Tether. But it's 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 not money. It is software. It is something that excites the technological appetite of the world. And to be long at and unobservant or in denial about better technology seems to me to lead the way to a complete wipeout. Well, I mean, why should this be worth anything? Why should lots Bitcoin of be worth anything? There's lots of trading in the world that you could ask the same questions of. Paintings, gold, um, various stonks um, that have no prospect of earning their cost of capital in a sustainable way. Matt Levine makes a fantastically entertaining argument that people like to be entertained and that there's inherent value in the casino and um, and being part of a community has value. And going on YouTube and talking about Bitcoin with other Bitcoin maxis has value. Um, these, you know, the, 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 the world is in fact changing to be sort of more online, the metaverse, um, you know, that um, our friend Mark Zuckerberg has, has rebranded his entire company around. Uh, those can simultaneously be trends that are real, um, but also sort of excuses to prop up an absurd valuation. Um, so like there's a painting on, yeah. Well, Evan, you've talked about you've, you've talked about this, Evan. You've talked about the sporting aspect of this and what fun it is. And with Bitcoin, at least you can you don't have to take the weekend off. You can you can be all in all the time. And it's kind of a superior bouncing electric light on the Bloomberg screen, right? It's, in that respect, it's 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 much improved speculation tool. Heavy leverage, all day, all night trading. You don't have to get dressed to do it. And the nice thing perfect. is the leverage is also endogenous to the system. You can get it from DeFi. You can get it from um, perpetual swaps that actually give a lot of leverage in Bitcoin. And if you default on a loan, there's not a guy named Vinny who comes over and breaks your kneecaps. take your fiat. So let me drive this point home because it's critical. And it's one we think about a lot. Uh, we were talking earlier, Jim, about um, you know the need for new fiat. The the driving force, we believe, behind the need to create these Bitcoin ETFs to get the fidelities and the people at Fidelity to get behind this is there's a constant need for fresh money coming into the system to support the desire for certain insiders and uh, early winners to get out, as one might say, to um, increase their liquidity, to quote a, quote a Chama term. Um, and when we look through the behavior of everyone involved via that lens, it can be pretty eye-opening. Again, we just explained sort of our, uh, the view of NFTs through that lens. So in a system that does not produce any fiat, it may produce value, but it doesn't produce fiat. That system needs a constant inflow of new money. And there's a, there's a phrase for such a system. Uh, the biggest complaint we got about the piece was that we inaccurately used the term Ponzi and that we should have called it a pyramid scheme. Okay. We think of that as a distinction without much of a difference. Um, but nonetheless, the scheme requires a constant inflow of new fiat. And there's an interesting thing going on, which is the SEC keeps rejecting all of these Bitcoin ETFs and pointing specifically to the tether fraud for the reason uh, uh, that underpins their rejection. Um, now, there's another couple of interesting phenomena going on. This GBTC, this, this um, Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, is trading at a substantial discount to the quote-unquote mark-to-market value of Bitcoin. Why is that? Well, there's no redeem aspects to it. So it's sort of a standard NAV fund trading at a discount to fair value. That's one interpretation. Another is maybe people are beginning to wonder whether if they truly needed to cash out, there would be that much fiat laying around for them to pick up. There's yet another little tell. The Bitcoin miners 
the people that are spending that billion dollars a month to keep the uh, proof of work going. Um, they are sitting on a lot of Bitcoin. Um, why won't they cash out? They're publicly traded now, you know, like Coinbase. Everybody's trying to do an IPO. If you truly thought the future of the world was Bitcoin, why are you worried about becoming um, hardwired into the fiat system with real obligations and, and real reporting obligations, in particular to the SEC? There's a lot of hints here about what's actually going on. And, and look, we're the first to admit we're the old man shaking his fist on the lawn at the new newfangled technology, perhaps. But there's only so many schemes in the world, and there's an awful lot of smoke going around this one. Well, but you are an old man on the lawn shaking your fist at other old men who are in yesteryear's technology. This is the uh, Queen Mary versus the <laughs> Boeing 707, maybe, right? The short-life short contest for dominance in the transatlantic passenger business. And we think that uh, Bitcoin is not going to turn out to be the, uh, the jet in that particular competition. We are looking at we are looking at the RMS. Be prepared Queen for Mary an onslaught of angry Bitcoin. handwritten letters in the U.S. mail. Handwritten? <laughs> oh, well, they're my peeps. <laughs> Maybe penny postcards. Um, municipal bonds trade by appointment only, and even then, only sometimes. So the closed-end funds that own munis are sometimes seen as kind of proxies for market sentiment when they trade at a large premium. Uh, maybe munis are, you know, you know, uh, cheap relative to where the real marks are, and when they trade at a discount, maybe people are already implicitly marking them down. So the fact that the grayscale trust trades at such a commanding discount yeah, right now really is something to GBTC. note. GBTC is mark to market in US dollar. And as we've argued, and many others have as well, it's not an original idea of ours, we should, we should say. Um, Bitcoin is mark to market predominantly in Tether. Um, and people get angry when we say that, oh, you know, Tether's not available at US exchanges. Yeah, but these exchanges arbitrage each other. And so if Tether is the predominant currency in which Bitcoin trades overseas, it has a substantial impact vis-a-vis -vis the market structure on the quoted price, the sleight of hand of quoting Bitcoin in US dollars. GBTC literally is marked in US dollars. And we believe that's an interesting tell. Yeah. And all of the largest exchange, I believe, are Tether only, like Binance, which is the vast majority of trading and also Bitcoin derivatives, which offer a lot of um, leverage themselves. Yeah, you're you trading, trading Tether with Tether. leverage, but you deposited fiat when you first arrived at the casino. And so, again, in that piece, you know, a crypto field of dreams, we conceived of the thought experiment of building the ideal fiat currency machine, uh, you know, fiat uh, confiscation machine, I'm sorry. Um, and it wouldn't look very much different than what we see today, we believe. And so we think, you know, buyer beware. Um, if you're in it to speculate and you're in it for entertainment, that's great. Um, how much actual hard fiat is floating around in crypto universe is a question we'd love to know the answer to. And we suspect it's many, many multiples lower than the mark-to-market -market value of crypto that people look at on their phone and think they actually could access that in the form of U.S. dollars. You know, in, in conclusion, Doomberg and Evan Lorenz, I would say that um, uh, the more I listen to this learned conversation and the more I hear the word fiat being spat around, the more I am coming to suspect that the entire crypto project is a nefarious scheme by the United States government to make fiat currency look good. <laughs> Deep. Think about it. Until next time on Current Yield, ladies and gentlemen, Doombrick, thank you for being with us. This is delightful, and I hope you'll come back again and again. We only have begun to scratch the surface of the uh, of the uh, Catholic and uh, and uh, and wide-ranging interests of the Doombrick team. We go on the Substack and uh, look at what they have written. It's um, 
It's delightful in style and provocative in subject and worldview. So thank you. And Evan Lorenz, I'm glad you're glad you're at Grants, Evan. I listened to you talk. I think there's a future for this enterprise. So ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. And until next time. Thank you.